Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another interview here on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Lee Pierce. I am an assistant professor of rhetoric here in New York, and I am very excited today to welcome Ruby Hamad, who is the author of the critically acclaimed book, White Tears, Brown Scars, How White Feminism Betrays Women of Color, which came out last year from Catapult Press. Taking us from the slave era when white women fought in court to keep, quote, ownership of their slaves through centuries of colonialism to the modern workplace, White Tears, Brown Scars tells the story of white women's active participation in campaigns of oppression. It offers a long overdue validation of the experiences of women of color. It discusses everything from the Hunger Games and AOC to Barbecue Becky, and Hamad undertakes a new investigation through these different case studies of gender and race, showing how the division between innocent white women and racialized, sexualized women of color was created and why this division is crucial to confront. Hamad builds a powerful argument about the legacy of white superiority that we are socialized within, a reality that we must apprehend in order to fight. And with that, I hope you enjoy the interview. Ruby, are you there? I am here. Well, awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. You're over in Sydney, Australia, where it's morning. So <laughs> glad to I am back. indeed. And I am indeed. And yes, it is. Um, so thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, of course. So I told the audience a little bit about the book, just from a, mm-hmm. a very broad overview. Do you want to tell us more about yourself and how you came to write the book and what you think some of the big themes and takeaways are for uh, someone who hasn't read it yet? Sure, um, of course. So I'm a writer, journalist, and now a PhD candidate. So Hey, congrats! I say and now. I've actually been doing it three years, although it's kind of been on and off um, because I did take time off to write this book. Uh, But, yeah, so I've been working as a columnist and a features journalist for gosh, about 10 years in Australia before I wrote the book. And yeah, obviously being a, being a columnist, wrote a lot about feminism, a lot about race. Um, although I did write a lot about anything, uh, about, I wrote a lot about other things. And mm. it's interesting um, how they tend to get a lot sort of less traction, a lot less interest. And then when you write about race and feminism, everyone's like, why is everything about gender? Why is everything about race? It's like, huh. well, because you don't, listen you know you don't even look at my other stuff but anyway I'm going off on a tangent there but yes so this uh, book was inspired by or came out of a an essay I wrote for Guardian Australia which then was picked up by Guardian in the US and the UK and so it went viral and so that article was called how white women use strategic tears to silence women of color so you know, it was from 2018, and at that point, this um, you know, this concept of white women's tears wasn't as in the public sort of you know conscious as much as it is now. So it did create quite a big stir, and you know, positive and negative uh, as uh, these things tend to do. Uh, but it, it got it had such an impact on other women of color around the world that I I did have a lot of them, by which I mean dozens, contacting me, asking me to essentially keep the conversation going 
right? So the perspective was you've you've kind of like set off like a bomb almost in sort of this white space as we know the Guardian being a major newspaper and they wanted the conversation to keep going so that it wouldn't die down again. And I just remember, remember thinking, gosh, like I would never have thought I'd write a book on this. Is this really a book? Could there be a book here? So, you know, I started doing a, 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 you know, if I was to write a book, what would I focus on? And I did a little bit of research and and I just thought, oh, yeah, no, there is. (laughs) So Mm. that's literally how it it came about. Like, I, I, for me, that was one article and that was, you know, I just wanted to bring some, you know, highlight an issue I thought wasn't getting talked about enough. And yeah, it led to this. And so, what I do in the book is look at how um, the the construction of womanhood and white womanhood um, versus you know black womanhood versus Arab womanhood versus indigenous womanhood how that concept was used to um, not only rationalize and justify, uh, you know, colonialism, violence against uh, non-white peoples, but how it really became a foundational, uh, you know, aspect of Western society. Yeah, and and the book really has an excellent historical, right? Because you kind of you kind of start with a very current example, which um, was a, a white journalist after Charlottesville. When, when Trump said, you know, there are the, cl- the classic line, right, there are good people on both sides. And then you move into, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Jezebels and exotic Orientals and Pocahontas and all of these colonial tropes of mm. black and brown femininity that have set up white fragility and white tears to be so persuasive as a public tactic. So it's interesting to draw those, those lines of connection because you do see how long this has been going on, right? It's not a social media phenomenon. It's historical through and through. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot, and I think a lot of people have have sort of made the argument that it's just media sensationalism, and it's like, well, no, this is a long, long-standing strategy of white violence for sure. So, do you want to um, maybe start with that, and and maybe maybe the Fox News example, or just whatever you think kind of gets us into yeah. this illustration fastest? Just for I, I just like to be sensitive to readers who haven't had a chance to dig through the book or so listen with to the, That's okay. So, with the Fox News example. Uh, I chose that one for two reasons. One is that it's an example of this phenomenon in a conservative environment, a conservative mm-hmm. setting, because, you know, the subtitle of my book being How White Feminism Betrays Women of Colour. So I want to, right. to set also that this is this extends beyond feminism, beyond, you know, um, progressivism of course and the other reason being that I, I i it was i think a um just like such a informative example of yes. the way in which you know white a white woman's distress has so much potency uh you know so much cultural potency cultural currency that even in a conversation about uh, race and racism occurring at a time where, um, like, you know, it, it was uh, that, that sort of white supremacist uh, violence was coming to the fore where black people and other people of colour had every right um, to be distressed, had every right to be angry and frustrated. That, so mm. even in that environment, uh, her distress was what, sort of um 
everyone was responding to and, uh, you know, uh, implicitly or explicitly attempting to um, soothe. And now whether that was because of, you know, sort of genuinely wanting to soothe her or whether uh, the, the, the realisation that um, arguing with her and distressing her further is actually going to work against them. That is, that's what I wanted right. to, that's what I wanted to, it's the question that I wanted to, the audience to be, or the reader to be thinking as they sort of proceed through the book. So because, uh, you know, that conversation, uh, her, her tears. So, so um, what was the journalist's name again? My, my bad. It's been a while uh, since I've No, it's uh, he, uh, Faulkner is her last name. Um, yeah. Right, the, yes. The, so the, Melissa, the woman journalist of color, uh, Harris Faulkner, and then I yeah. think it is um, Melissa Francis, right? Melissa so Mel- Francis, yeah. who's the white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just want to set that up for the for the re- the, the the listener. Sure. So Thank Melissa Francis, that. being, that's okay. The Melissa Francis being the, the white journalist is so because uh, she was challenged. She was challenged, and they, I guess you know, guess called out by by her colleagues saying, "You're kind of defending." Trump here and so she got upset or became visibly upset and and saying this is really hard and and you know not everyone here is uh, you, know, you know essentially saying that uh, the what was distressing about this issue is that she was being told that that she was defending Trump so um, it, it, the whole conversation became about her distress and it was no longer about um, what Trump said. It was no longer about the, the you know, the, the protests that was going going on, the, about the violence that was had occurred in, you know, in North Carolina. So it just kind of shut everything down, and it was just like, wow. Um, so that's, you know, that's why I, you know, I chose that. That particular piece was a very sort of a public example, but one that had been, you know, hadn't. Uh, it was discussed at the time, but but by the by the time I wrote the book, it had been a few years. So I sort of wanted to recollect it. Well, and it's illustrative too because the coho mm. one of one of um one of Harris's co-hosts, or sorry, one of one of Melissa Francis's co-hosts, uh, Harris Faulkner, is mm-hmm. a black woman, and so yes. of course now she's in this position of having to not only not express her own emotions, but also in not necessarily comfort, but certainly not do any more damage. And you, you actually write uh, what should be remarkable, uh, remarkable about this clip is that it is the black woman who remains stoic and almost expressionless while the white woman is freely emotional and teary. Uh, and of course, right, because even she has to be backed into a corner to prioritize the comfort of this white woman because it's so conditioned that that's how we react. Absolutely. Yeah, it was really helpful. I mean, it was, yeah, I hadn't heard about the incident, um, so it was just yeah. a, a great place to enter into the argument for sure yeah thanks uh, thank you and i i mean you know and that is still available online so i, mm-hmm. I you know i recommend so, so short clip a couple of minutes long i, I do recommend um you know, if people hop onto youtube and look for it because it it, it really is um like it's quite disturbing to see how calm Faulkner had to stay knowing yeah. she had to stay calm when she's talking what is essentially a matter of life and death for black people. Uh, Right. Yeah. Yeah, And then, um, so then you you tell this interesting story about how the book came to be. I don't know if you want to recount this before you kind of hop into this first uh, part of the book where you talk about how colonialism rigged the game against women of color. So would you like to go there? Do you want to talk a little bit about this um, 
exchange you had with another journalist about getting the book off the ground? Yeah. Um, so it wasn't um, wasn't necessarily with other journalists. It was it was it was I had a Twitter account then. I no longer Twitter. Do. That's true. Yeah. Uh, it was Twitter, yeah. So it was spoke, it yeah. was women on Twitter. Um, because, you know, a lot of people on Twitter don't use their real names, so, so <laughs> I, I don't, and it's fine, it wasn't, but it was just, uh, you know, those days when, when that article came out, it's all a haze because I was getting so much thrown at me. Um, but I do remember a lot of um, women of colour sort of, you know, saying, um, well, what are you going to do next? At first I was like, well, what do you mean? Like I, I've written the piece and now I'm going back to my PhD. But uh, <laughs> so, it, but I did feel, and I don't mean this in a, in a burdensome way, I, I felt that it became a, a responsibility or an obligation on me to mm. do it because, okay, well, if I've written this article, it's clearly struck many nerves and I am in a position now, if I write further on this, I probably will get the opportunity to publish a book on it that other women of colour may not. Um, I probably will, mm. um, uh, you know, be listened to by some. And it, it, I felt that I did have a duty to do that um, because, you know, it's all part of, the, you know, giving back, I guess. And, like, what are you, you know, why why are you in this for? Why, why do you write for? The people that you're writing and speaking to and who, you know, shared this experience with you, if they're writing back to you and they're saying, please keep this going, then I, mm. I felt that I should. But I was a bit, oh, I was really worried because I was like, how, you know, I don't want to write a book just for the sake of it. Is this all going to be padding? Is it all? So what, what I did is I went back to the article and I thought, right, read this article as if it's not yours. And look at it and, and what jumps out at you, what what is happening underneath that you think this is really about. And so when I read it, I, I read, you know, the things that really jumped out at me is, you know, where I said, um, you know, Arab women, and then that was a standing for all non-white women, Arab women or, or, you know, whether we're angry or calm, whether we're shouting or pleading, we're always perceived as the aggressors. Mm. Um, I talk about, you know, the the the, uh, the trope of the Arab terrorist and, you know, the white damsel in distress trope and the angry black woman trope. And I thought, okay, this is a, you know, this is a story of archetypes. So this is a story of how we're so limited by these archetypes that precede us that when people speak to us or we're in a conflict with them, we're almost, we're not even really even talking to each other or seeing each other. We're seeing this caricature, this archetype. Mm. So then I thought, well, then I have to see where this came from, right? Like how, why, how can it be so strong that we actually, um, you know, we, we build our world around it essentially. So, yeah, that's, that's how that, so that when I did that, that's when I thought, okay, I, this definitely can be a book because it's not just talking about this dynamic, this sort of this interactions between white women and non-white women. We're looking at this history of how is it that white women come to be seen this way? How is it that, mm. um, you know, brown women and black women uh, have come to be seen the way that they do and and why is it so strong, like so potent that, you know, that, you know it leads to, you know, the, the situation that I, I talk about in the article. Yeah, I mean, well, first, yeah, I can't even imagine without a, without emotional 
the emotions were like with all those. And you tell the story of Lisa, I believe her last name is Benson, who was a journalist mm-hmm. who, um, who, who I think you, mm. that what her white colleagues accused her of creating a, a hostile atmosphere after she started telling people about this article yes. that you sorry, had written. Sorry, that's yeah. who you were referring to earlier. See, I, I don't yeah. think I explained that very well in the uh, book. Uh, or oh, really? Oh, okay. in, that, in that, no, no, no. I, I just mean that that interaction with her wasn't. The book was already in the works then. Uh, uh, I, I didn't have a didn't have a, the book deal yet, but I was working on the proposal, so that was already happening. Um, but I know I, I see what you mean now. It does it does perhaps? Uh, but it, but it that, is still an uh, illustration of is, how. Oh, absolutely. Insulated, yes. right? That yeah, you could yeah. bring up this article and and then be accused of creating a hostile work environment. I mean, it, oh, it, the hypocrisy it, is alarming. Perfectly demonstrated yeah. it. And it was really like, yeah, it was really shocking. Um, maybe it shouldn't have been, but it was. And and it was awful because, uh, you know, I was like, oh, my goodness, I, I thought I was doing something good and writing this. Um, is it? Is this topic so taboo? Is it so non-approachable that I'm actually going to be doing more harm than good? Oh, interesting. That's that was what went through my mind with that, um, because yeah, because it's like this is absolute. You know, <laughs> you know, a, a, you know, a woman losing her job or her contract over it was, and, and yeah, so. That is what my first thought was, and then you know, but then of course I'm thinking, okay, this don't make it, you know, about your feelings. So I was having a, you know, conversations <laughs> with, with, I know, ironically, yeah. I was having, yeah. but you know, it was, it was, um, yeah, it's because I said I, I wanted to do, you know, something useful, not not something that would hurt people. But I, um, you know, the conversations with her, and then I, I sort of I scatter her story a little bit throughout the book, and that. I mean, she has no regrets with it, and it's, it's mm. led her to a new place in her life where she now, um, uh, you know, runs uh, workshops and consultancy on sort of race in the workplace in the US. So it's given her a, a, a whole new purpose in her life. And yeah. well, um, I mean, and I can't speak out to the should, experience. Yeah, but I, I give this to students in my class. Uh, you know, to read, and and many of them will write uh-huh. me, the students of color, because we're at a predominantly white institution. Because you know, the white tears are such a control mechanism because they seem benign and genuine. And and you, oh, you have this great line. I wish I highlighted that. Just because something is genuine doesn't mean it's not also manipulative. I can't remember what you say, but essentially, uh, yeah, I'm, you do feel it is genuine, but that that feeling is still culturally conditioned and historically driven, right? Yeah, it's not to say you're being disingenuous, but you can be genuine and still participate in oppression yeah i know sure. what i know yeah. the line that you're referring to yeah actually. i just didn't highlight I it i wish i had yeah that's okay i'll <laughs> but it, it, it's it's just they may well be genuine but that doesn't mean they're legitimate i think is the word yeah I use. legitimate that's, that's right yeah. that's right and, and so what i meant by that was they you know the white woman in a, in a scenario may well be upset and really genuinely distressed but is she distressed uh, because she's been misunderstood or is she distressed because she feels that, that this woman, this other woman, this, you know, woman of colour is not, um, you know, supplicating herself enough? Is, right. is she distressed because she feels that the racial, uh, you know, this unspoken racial hierarchy is being transgressed? Mm. 
Yeah. Mm. So, you know, uh, being upset can have um, different, uh, uh, what is the word, you know, propellers. <laughs> like, so, yeah, that's, that's what I was getting at with that. Well, then the book moves into sort of some historical context, and you actually start with an anecdote from the Hunger Games, which is also mentioned in, in an interview uh, that's also that just happened on the New Books Network with uh, Ebony uh, Thomas about the Dark Fantastic, where she talks about racial racism in the imaginary and, and when everyone was upset about Rue from the Hunger Games being cast mm. as a, a, a black character um, and all of the people hopping onto those fan boards to be kind of outraged that they hadn't imagined her as black they'd imagined her as white so they were upset that the character had been recast and you pull that into a long-standing history of um you know european christian colonialism and so what are some examples from this chapter or specific historical figures that you think are particularly uh the american plantation mistress you talk about her and yeah so we've been taught that white women are constantly under siege by you know, black threats, things like that. Yeah, so I, I started that chapter. The, um, so, the, you know, as you mentioned, the title, Lou Jezebel's Exotic Orientals, Princess, Princess Pocahontas, How Colonialism Rigged the Game Against Women of Colour. Um, so, you know, right away I wanted to go into the construction of these archetypes. And I started with that. The Hunger Games, because it's something I remember quite clearly. It's almost a decade mm. now, but it was one yeah. of the first sort of, you know, those sort of Twitter, social media mm. um, ha- sort of outrages. But what really, what stuck out to me at the time and why I revisited <laughs> is that the incredulity that, um, and these were young people, right, young fans right. of fiction were showing was so, uh, they didn't like, it, it wasn't it wasn't sort of furtive it, it you know maybe some were a bit sheepish but they were so open mm. in that in, in expressing that they felt in some way betrayed um that it's just you know it's quite astonishing uh and that how free they felt to to come out and say that it doesn't seem right that a young black girl is is cast in a role where the character is innocent and lovable and yes. it, it's quite astonishing so I um, wanted to trace that back so to show you know to, to, to lead back into that the history of of that construction um, and to show how young it starts uh, for women of color and in that specific instance for for black women and I started with that as well and and obviously that that constru- the historical construction is what they they called the, the the Jezebel the black Jezebel mm. uh, which comes from um, you know the, the the slavery era and I chose that one first and then I you know I go into uh, archetypes of other racialized women of different backgrounds but I I put that one in first because I I it's almost like that was the prototype for all the others. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All, all the others, like the you know, the East Asian China doll, the exotic um, you know, Oriental women is is almost comes although the you know, the exotic Oriental women did exist before the Jezebel, however, it was probably more benign um then. Mm. It wasn't it wasn't um until colonialism, until slavery that um it was used to rationalize uh, colonialism. Well, funnily right. enough, so um, 
yeah. So essentially, like you know, the black Jezebel was this, it was a, a construction of, of of black women, and let's be clear, it was enslaved black women as being promiscuous and, and easy it, to mm-hmm. rationalize the sexual abuse of of enslaved black women, and it's that. You know, like it's just that it's simple and horrific at the same time, and um, the uh, you know, and the after effects of that is, as I said, this ongoing perception that's implicit and pervasive of black women as lacking in all kinds of innocence, including sexual innocence, even as as children, and mm-hmm. so. You know, I discuss uh, you know studies like the the Washington the George Washington study of 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 how black girls are, are pushed into adulthood really early. Um, they're just they're just seen as 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 almost fully grown women. Um, you know, by the time they're like eight or ten, like, and it's quite um, well. You know, it's it's obviously it's it's so. Um, it's a word like it is it's so pervasive and yet um has been so unspoken for so long mm. that it just becomes sort of implicitly understood and then it explodes every once in a while which is how it exploded in that um you know the, the hunger games example and so the black jezebel was um the the foil or or the or rather the you know, the white mistress was the foil for the black Jezebel, right? So you have this construction right. of the virtuous, chaste, moral, you know, fully clothed, heavily clothed white <laughs> mistress who was mm-hmm. the antithesis of um, the black Jezebel and the, the white mistress as long as she was, you know, existed really, as long as that archetype existed and was protected then it's almost sort of served as this um, this absolution and this um, rationalisation for all of the horrors of slavery, yeah. and then and from that, from other you know colonial the colonial experience in other countries that were colonised by the West or by Europe. Yeah, one of the things that's really interesting about this first section is you have to cut a, across a lot of different stereotypes that are not all exclusively one group or another, right? Because Jezebels and Orientals and Pocahontas, I mean, you're talking about indigenous women and brown women and Arab women. So was this hard? Or did you see a lot of similarities? Did you have to oversimplify things or did you just focus on what was in common? Because I thought you, you kind of pointed out the particulars and the generalities really well, but was it difficult to try to bring all of these into to common point here? Uh, no, see, when I was first sort of, you know, structuring, you know, the the, the book and, and, you know, writing, okay, well, what this chapter might be about, what this chapter was, I, I knew that um, I was going in and that I was going to be discussing what the main, you know, stereotypes and obstacles uh, for women of colour are depending on what their racial and ethnic group is. Uh, what I wasn't expecting, because I knew that we all had, our, our specific struggles, but what I wasn't expecting was how similar they were, and it, it was the similarity. Obviously, executed to in, to different degrees um, of a, a, a sort of, of brutality and, and marginalization and effectiveness, but the, they were similar in uh, um, their impetus and. 
practiced this in their construction. And it was that, it was the similarities that then compelled me to put them together in the same chapters. And so interesting. Uh, I, you know, in the, in the setup, and I called it the, you know, part one the setup because it's the setup both in how, you know, colonialism set women up, but also I'm setting up the, the, the second half of the book. Right. And, and that, um, and there was so like the, the, I ended up spending a lot more time on the history than I really originally envisaged just because it was so rich and it was just so fundamental to why or to how women are still perceived today that I, I felt that it needed a, um, it needed a, a deeper discussion and and that's then why I then split it up into two chapters. So the first chapter, so you have, you know, the, the Jezebel's exotic orientals, uh, the, you know, the China dolls, those are the sexual submissive um, uh, promiscuous uh, archetypes. And then the chapter following that, which is the uh, what's it, the angry sapphires, bad mm. Arab, uh, dragon ladies. So that's where the well, the angry, the cunning, um, the untrustworthy, deceptive, and uh, sexually deceptive um, stereotypes and archetypes of women of color came in. And what I found that was fascinating, like looking at the history, is that. The promiscuous uh, stereotypes, and they they correspond to the beginnings of colonialism and you know um, and slavery, and sort of ju- justifying the spread of the West and the, mm-hmm. you know, the of European colonialism, and then for a short time um, sustaining it, and then when um, you know decolonization movement started to become stronger, when the colonized began to resist. That's when the angry, violent, threatening archetypes became, you know, came into play. Right? Oh, um, and that's why I did them in their own chapters. And so these are things I wasn't expecting to find. I, I wasn't expecting to see those, those fundamental similarities. And I wasn't expecting to see how these archetypes came, um, were constructed and to correspond with these, these moments in, in history of European colonialism and of resistance movements of, you know, different groups of racialized people. Um, it was really, it was really fascinating to me, and I, I, I actually just thought uh, I could write a whole. Well, I mean, I mean, you could write a book on just one, you know, right. those, yeah. that, uh, but obviously, I had to write it in a way that it stays in keeping with um, the impetus of the book which is to look at this dynamic between white women and women of color in when they're in a conflict why does it tend to almost always um play out the way that it does well and it's a helpful historical frame for sure because you know now that it's become certainly like it's it's become a little more tricky let's say to specifically invoke these stereotypes outright but you can still invoke their inverse which is white fragile femininity so even though people aren't saying angry black women this the way that they might have been in the 60s the fact that you're invoking the opposite is still doing that work and i couldn't have seen that i don't think if i hadn't had the context oh yes thank you and that that's exactly right though you put it really well in that um by those you know the distress you know what i call the you know the distress of the damsel automatically triggers right 
those perceptions of um, racialized women, of, of women of colour, without having to say it. So yeah. as soon as that happens, so on what I wanted to show is, is that it's these um, archetypes, these representations have just been so relentless and so pervasive for so long, they've just yeah. become like the air we breathe. You know, what's the analogy about the fish in the water? You no longer see right. it, right? A fish yeah. doesn't see the water, it just is. And this is the power that, um, you know, that art, that literature, that music, that drama, uh, as well as politics has. They feed mm -hmm. and, and, and um, buttress and perpetuate each other so that it just becomes, you know, natural to see people in certain ways without even having to vocalise it. Right. Yeah, and, and that sort of leads us well into the second part of the book, the, the mm -hmm. payoff, which you mean both in the sense it's the payoff of the argument and that this is the payoff that white power gets from setting up all these historical stereotypes. You you, you say that there is no sisterhood of white women and yes. racism. And I thought this was an important claim and probably one of maybe the least popular I can imagine of the book <laughs> that the fact that white women and black women share women doesn't mean that they have an equal stake in 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 the struggle of the sisterhood, quote unquote, because you argue that white women can move out of certain boxes, right? Because they can always invoke whiteness but black yes. women can't invoke anything outside of being a black woman. So can you, do you say a little bit more about this section and what yeah, the so, contribution is here? So um, what I was getting at there and is that, um, and I've become a bit, a lot clearer on, on what I think there since then, you know, speaking about it. That's uh, how it goes, yeah. Uh, yes, I understand. Uh, so what I was getting at there is that, um, so, you know, like Western feminism, mainstream Western feminism, you know, white feminism, looks at um, patriarchy and, and, and gender as like the master oppression that all women have in common. Mm. And I would argue, and I didn't say it outright then in the book, but it is leading to this, is that that would be so uh, until colonialism and the success of European colonialism because what European colonialism did is to give, uh, well, it, it gave white women a stake in, you know, whiteness in colonialism outside of their gender so and into their race. So when a woman has uh, a, a means of, of power and accessing power that um, sort of, uh, I guess, um, enables her to exercise that power over other women, then that is going to fracture any idea of a collective sisterhood. And uh, you can't, you know, to move in and out of it is, is, is uh, how, you know, one of the ways in which white feminism has always functioned and sustained itself in that mm -hmm. it, it will be like, yes, women, we're fighting against, you know, male violence and patriarchy. But when uh, any victory happens, it's going to be the white women who um, mostly, if not exclusively, benefits from that because then she steps into that whiteness. Um, so it, that to, to me, colonialism changed that, everything. And, and that's why um, looking at oppression of women only through that prism of gender and, you know, patriarchy is, uh, it's inhibiting 
an actual um, it's inhibiting an understanding of how power and oppression functions in the West and and now across the world, right? Um, so that is why there can't be a sisterhood because it's uh, whiteness essentially gets in the way is what, I, what I'm getting at that because white women and white feminists throughout history, as I discussed in that, that part of the book, have worked with white men to suppress mm-hmm. and oppress uh, other women. And not only that, they've, you know, they've act- actively um, appealed to powerful white men and saying, we will help you. We will help, you know, the spread of the, and the, the, the power of the white man, the white race. We will, you know, giving us um, the right to vote, giving us, you know, um, more powerful jobs outside of the home is not going to, um, it's not going to, to weaken white rule. It's actually going to strengthen it. And they stay true to their words. So it's examples I give is the, um, you know, in Australia and, and the West, and the West uh, American West, uh, is the taking of Indigenous children, which was yeah. not only, you know, Margaret Jacobs uh, talks about this as a, as a historian, and not only did they, was it mostly white women who physically took the children, um, but in Australia in particular, they... Um, uh they they constructed that like they they uh presented their role to to white men and as in white men in power as um this is a job for women mm-hmm. and we can do this better than you and we'll um help the spread of civilization because we'll take these children we'll raise them better and they will eventually come you know, they'll be basically become useful to white society, to capitalism. And so that's what the children, you know, they were taken and, you know, the Indigenous girls were taken to be domestic servants and Indigenous boys were became labourers, right? So they became uh, commodified in, you know, for capitalism and um, to, you know, for, facilitate the attempt to sort of destruction of Indigenous cultures, Indigenous families. So it's not just a matter of uh, white feminists don't think about um, other women enough. It's you know along every step of the way they've all they've actively um, leveraged for their emancipation and their you know against their subordination by um, you know who are proverbially throwing uh, other women under the bus and basically driving over them with it. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, and you and you mentioned multiple uh, movements for women's suffrage, and you mentioned the book by um, oh gosh, it's Claire Claire Wright about Australia's yes. suffragist movement, and it's yeah. in which you know Indigenous women were specifically were very specifically sacrificed to to make the movement palatable Absolutely. for white men. Yeah, and it happened yeah. in America, and then we saw it again in 2017 with the Women's March. How many black right. and brown women's voices were silenced? Yeah. And so we're always surprised, right? Yeah. Like, you know, we were surprised. We were surprised by how many white women voted for Trump in 2016 and then even more voted in 2020. So what mm-hmm. I was trying to get at is like, we need to stop being surprised at this because this is what history is setting up, has set us up for. Right. And in that, um, you know, how, yeah, you have this idea of a sisterhood, but 
you, when you look at the history of uh, Western society, colonialism, true womanhood was presented as something that only the white woman can have. So right. how can we be sisters when I'm told I'm being woman of colour, be told that I'm not even really a woman, right? right. So that, to me, has to be addressed. This, this chasm, this, this gulf that colonialism deliberately um, constructed um, between white women and all other women, until that's addressed, then it's always going to exist, even though we're attempting to, you know, whatever, plant flowers over it, it's there. Uh, <laughs> and that is, that is, the, that is what um, uh, makes, the, you know, this idea of, of, a, of, a, of a, a true sort of global sisterhood completely, um, well, it's, you know, it's historical and, and it's just not, um, it's not in any way a real um, sort of representation of, of the reality. Yeah, absolutely. And this brings us into some some new terms, actually. I mean, I'd heard of class washing before, but not the way. So in chapter seven, you title it The Rise of Righteous Racism. And in this chapter, you talk about class washing and the mm -hmm. Lovejoy trap. And I would love mm -hmm. for you to tell us a little bit more about those two, because I think they're strategy. I think they're, they're rhetorical strategies, for lack of a better word, or media strategies or whatever, through which this stuff gets enacted. And I, I don't know that a lot of people would pick up on this as easily. I mean, I think it's easy now to look and say like, oh, the dragon lady stereotype. But what you don't realize is that stereotype has has been replaced now with new ways. And I think that'd be helpful for our listeners to, to maybe as like frameworks for them to, to wonder, where do they see this and where are they doing it? So do you want to maybe tell us a little bit about sure. class washing and the love? So class washing, I first came up with, and I'm sure other people have used it as well, but um, <laughs> it's, one of those, it's one of those words that I'm just like, wow, I'm brilliant, but also I'm pretty sure I can't, I'm pretty sure I can't be the first person who has said this, um, gaslighting being another. But anyway, uh, class washing, I first, uh, I first referred to it a few years ago uh, uh, in the context of Australian politics um, and just that, uh, um, so I use it to refer it's a kind of a double, not so much a double-edged sword, but but it has double meanings within um, how how it's used by white white people, white society. Mm -hmm. So you have class washing, as in um, so, uh, to to uh, shut down or to minimize um, discussions and arguments about racism by presenting the working class as, you know, class is the real issue. So, so presenting this in, in much the same way that, you know, white feminism tries to present gender and feminism as sort of uniting all women, mm -hmm. uh, class is presented the same way as, right. well, this is, you know, this is what we all have in common regardless of our race um, and other marginalisations. So this is what we should focus on. Uh, but that obviously does not take into account how class um, hits different people differently depending on their racial background, depending on their gender identity, you know, and other marginalizations as well. And and then the other aspect of um, class washing is that it essentially blames, whether it's explicitly or implicitly, blames racism on the working class, because that's right. where the, all these arguments of, well, it's not educated, or they just, we just have to talk, we just have to tell them. But then you, you know, so, so they're presenting um, racism as this kind of, um, this problem of, um, you know, lack of, of money, lack of social status, lack of education. 
But then once again, you look at the statistics of who voted for Trump and so many of were college educated. So mm-hmm. you, you see that these, that these fall down in that. And so on the one hand, it's like excusing um, uh, working class white people for any racism, but then also kind of blaming them and saying that, right. you know, um, right. it's just because, they, you know, they're, you know, like, <laughs> so, so it's this weird sort of double effect. Um, so that and so, uh, class washing. What what that it, it um you know it prevents a an understanding of um the way in which class is used. Uh, I think Stuart Hall referred to it as you know it's it's the modality modality through which race is lived. Right. Um. So you know again you go back to 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 the history and that um white you know working class white people were not considered to be part of white society so whiteness wasn't just about you know to be white to be european derived was necessary it was a necessary um uh criteria for being part of white society but it wasn't sufficient right um, you you had you you uh, working class white people were sex workers or white women who were not sex workers but who stepped outside of their, um, you know, their, their function as, you know, the virtuous representation of whiteness, they, they would be kicked out. Um, so mm-hmm. it's very much a, a construction in that way. Um, and so that so class washing essentially washes all that history away and it washes away that understanding that how, of how class is um, utilized to um, perpetuate and, and to solidify racial oppressions. Well, the other thing I like about this is also uh, in this chapter, it's also that, that this, this idea that racism goes away with class mobility mm. is, is wrong. Uh, is that true? right? And one thing, you know, and, and, and one thing we've seen from the studies is that upwardly mobile black women, especially, Black and brown women do not experience significant reductions in preventable illness, right? Because racism is still so much the same whether you make a hundred thousand dollars a year. And I'm not, and I'm not, not certainly not slugging the fact that money, you know, income and upper mobility matter. But the idea that they eradicate racism is is very much exposed as a myth in this part of the chapter. No, absolutely. Yes. You know, and it'll um, for sure, you know, provides a, a greater buffer. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's it's it, it's it's something yeah, that can, put it. yeah it's something that can very very easily be ripped away and undermined. Yeah. So it, it, yeah, uh, and in the same you know by the same token, being upwardly mobile for white people isn't going to make <laughs> racial right, attitudes make go you away. Yeah. yeah, yeah, unless unless those issues are dealt with. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then and then piggybacking on that, then what is the Lovejoy trap? Right, so that's um, I came up with that too because, well, you know, Helen Lovejoy in the, in, um, mm-hmm. the Simpsons being you know her that famous meme where um, she's you know lets out this sort of this faux anguished yell and won't someone think of the children, mm-hmm. and so the idea being there is that. Um, we use children as a god what's the right word sometimes i can't think of right words on the fly but but that's okay it's, it's difficult it's, it's a, <laughs> like we we uh we uh use children um it's as proxies right mm-hmm. to yeah. actually 
promote or to present our own personal agendas. And, and so um, there's this, the, you know, we, we, we enact or we perform concern for children even when the matter that we're discussing isn't about, you know, children or doesn't, isn't directly um, concerned with, with the welfare of children and it's a it's a bait and switch essentially mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. so i call it a trap because when how it's used in the context of 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 women of color um and all people of color really but you know the book focuses on women of color uh is that it, it'll shut you down by turning it back on you and saying well you just don't care about the children you don't care about women so example of you know being um uh, I think, you know, I start off the chapter, I talk about an incident on Australian TV. Uh, 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 um, you know, we, we have a we have a big thing every year in, in Australia about Australia Day, you know, which they say is the equivalent of July 4th, but it's not really because January 26th is the date that, you know, the first fleet, the first ship of, of convicts from England came to mm-hmm. this con- continent and began you know, the colonization. So, um, so, you know, there's, we, there's this, this idea of, of celebrating that day, um, as supposedly this sort of this unifying, uh, celebration for all of us. And so, you know, the protests against, um, Australia Day led by you know, Indigenous activists get bigger every year. Yeah. And so obviously there's always going to be a backlash as well. So this incident on TV with this, um, white woman and it wasn't an indigenous woman it was a, it was another a, a brown woman um who who uh, um you know they, they sort of given their the, the back and forth and then you know the white woman Carrie Ann Kellini who's who's a, a host long time as host on Australian TV said well you know do you care about the uh, uh you know trigger warning here do you care about the woman uh and children who were being raped in those remote communities, five-year-olds being raped, etc. So she's getting at that. What she's saying is the biggest threat to Indigenous women are actually Indigenous men. Indigenous men, what yeah. she's saying, right? Right, right. Um, and so that to me is what I talk about when I say the love for a trap because they were, they were talking about um Australia Day which again the movement against it led by indigenous activists and it they it turned around and basically she basically said well what about the children why aren't you if that was not the that's absolutely not pertinent in that discussion but it, what it yeah. did is that bait and switch it put the focus on the other woman whose uh, name was is Jimmy Steins uh essentially telling her no look you're the one who doesn't care about you know, Aboriginal women, and you're the one who doesn't care about Aboriginal children. Because if you really did, you wouldn't be wasting time talking about Australia Day. You'd be talking about what's happening in these remote communities. Um, so that's what I mean about mm-hmm. about that. And you know, so it's used in other contexts, you know, as well, with like the to justify the war in Afghanistan, right? Um, oh, we do. It's part of women's rights. We have to liberate the women. So it, it, it becomes about the only, the only time, I, I think I, how I said in the book, the only time that, that white society seems to find its moral compass when it comes to uh, the abuse of non-white women is when they can use it as a justification for intervening in their communities right? Um, and when that abuse is said to be coming from 
yep. the men, so, non-white men within their own racial groups. Yeah, I feel very similar about the only time that white America seems to care about black underprivileged children is when it gives them an excuse to like take them away or incarcer- mass incarcerate their parents. And, <laughs> like and it's that. even like it's that, that um, you know, like so whenever uh, in the U.S., like the, when the discussions of police brutality are on the table. Yes, very similar. Right. What, do people, what, is a, what is a counter argument, which is not even really a counter argument? You'll say you'll start to hear about, well, what about black on black crime? Yes, right. You know? Okay, right. we're not talking about that. Like, you know, everyone yeah. is is more likely to, to you know, if they're going to be, you know, the victim of violent crime, it's most likely going to be someone within their racial group anyway. But even so, that's not the discussion that we're having. So it's a spade and switch. and it's yeah. But it's a bait and switch that's not, not only does it divert the conversation, it does so in such a way that it makes you, as in being the person who is, you know, say talking about racism it makes you seem like the person who's morally deficient right so that's that's what yeah. i mean about, about the rise of righteous racism it's like not only am i being really racist i'm <laughs> going to do it in such a way that actually makes me look like the good guy and you look like the bad guy um yeah so yeah. that's you know and that's why i call it a trap because as soon as a bait and switch like that is pulled it's you can't you know, so so to go back to that example I gave on the TV, so so they're talking about Australia Day. Then as soon as, you know, the white host said something about the communities, uh, you know, what what have you done for those remote communities? That it, it should have just been um, steered back, or we should mm. just look at it as steered. That's not what we're talking about today. As soon as you try to defend yourself on that, you've you've basically taken the bait yeah. um, because. Because they don't, you know, it's not really about their that. It's about um, not having the discussion that should be had. If that makes sense. So that's why I call it a trap. And Lovejoy again, um, you know, named after Helen Lovejoy because yeah, I, I started like- to see it. I was just seeing it so much. So well, what about it? Uh, you know, these children, and you don't care about those children, and 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 they use it as the same, you know, for women as well. Like, um, you know, if you really cared about women's rights, you'd go to Saudi Arabia. That sort of, you know, like that kind of a thing. Right. It's like, as in, you'd go, you know, be a feminist in Saudi Arabia. Um, it's that kind of a uh, of the spade and switch of making themselves look like the good guy. Yeah. Yeah, no, this was really helpful. And I, and I, one of the things you know about a good book is then you start to see things everywhere. So in the two months since I finished reading this, I've seen this love joy trap happen at least 10 times. So it's, um, it's, and it's it's cool because it's from the Simpsons. So it's, yeah. So thank you for asking me about it. It's actually, that's one of those little things in the book, you know, so little things. But one of the things in the book I was quite, you know, <laughs> proud yeah, of. No, in that, right. You know, in that, in that I, I felt like it should be given a name um, yeah. because yeah. it's a definite, um, you know, it's a tool that's used of, 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 of shutting down, you know, really important movements and conversations by, you know, uh, sort of trying to make the person who's concerned about inequality be the one who's morally, you know, lacking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, we're kind of running up on time. And I, I know that people love shorter interviews with, with sure. the average commute's 20 minutes. So we try to keep it to 45. That means you can listen yeah. to half on the way in, half on the way home. But I would like to get to the conclusion, which you've just titled mm-hmm. Brown Scars. And um, you, you reiterate this idea that what you, you say white, you say white feminism is an arm of empire. 
or something to that effect. And you just reiterate yeah. this idea that it's it's a very specific technique of colonialism and empire that acts itself out, even when we all are sitting around thinking how post-colonial we are. And um, yes. I don't know if you want to say anything else about the yeah. book or... So, yeah, mm-hmm. so w- w- I think I said white womanhood is the maternal art of Right, womanhood, empire. that's right. And that's then right. and then I say, and white feminism is not immune to this. So white feminism that's has right. inherited, and and so what I get at in the, that um, that chapter and entitling of Brown Scars is what I'm saying is that the cost, um, you know, the cost of white tears um, is Brown Scars and, and you know, uh, um, use poetic license there obviously I mean all, all people of color in, <laughs> right. in that so you have this this distressed of whiteness um you know this this wounded victim um, presentation but the harm is not you know the the, the the damage is not being done to white people the damage right. is being done to, to non-white people um, and that you know um that this is to me it's the it's the sort of the fundamental um issue the problem with 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 white feminism and all all sort of i think all political movements in the west is that none of them sufficiently address this none of them sufficiently address not only the way in which white movements were able to progress at our expense expense of people of color but in the way that any any attempt to raise that then becomes um, uh, an opportunity to perform white victimhood and mm-hmm. to prevent this these um, discussions from happening. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's an incredibly powerful book. It's historically contextualized, which is so helpful. The examples are really illustrative, and I just can't thank you enough for all it must have taken to, to write this, especially after what I imagine was a pretty tumultuous and also rewarding and also probably unpleasant at times experience yeah. after that article went viral. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was a wild time for sure. And, and um, yeah, it was one of those, things. I just kind of, you know, if I stopped too much to really think about it, I, I would have not been able to keep going. Um, it was, it was, yeah, it was, you know, it's A, because of having to write it fairly quickly and B, just, yeah, with, because I was kind of living it in real time, like I was living the backlash and the effects, still, um, you know, keeping in, in touch with, you know, Lisa Benson to see how her court case is going out, you know, so all of this stuff um, was happening in real time while I was also trying to write about the history of it. So, right. it, um, yeah, but look, you know, I'm, I'm really glad it's gotten out to people. And so I thank you for, you know, reading and, and talking about it with me. Yeah, of course. Well, and so for everyone listening, I just want to remind you that um, the title of the book is White Tears, Brown Scars, How White Feminism Betrays Women of Color. And it is from Catapult Books, which mm-hmm. has produced a bunch of really great stuff. I'm, 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 I'm like working yeah. with their catalog now. And, you know, we want to support independent presses like Catapult and work like Ruby's. So if you're so inclined, definitely pick up a copy of the book for yourself or pick up one from a friend. We recommend you head over to the Catapult website or to bookshop.org, which is a, um, a, an alternative to those of us who used to buy our books on Amazon. And if that's mm-hmm. not available to you right now, you can certainly stop into your local library, uh, academic libraries. I think especially I know that my college students have really appreciated this book. And put in a request to see if they would pick up a copy to put into circulation so other people can get access to the ideas. Again, to support 
work like this so it gets out to more people. And with that, Ruby, are you up to anything new? Are, are you doing any virtual speaking tours anybody might want to know about? Or is there anywhere people can connect with you if they want to keep up with your work? Um, so right now, I'm, I'm you know, um, bogged down in my, um, my PhD. My yeah. I, remember <laughs> the, I remember those days, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. And so that's, you know, is my main focus. I, yeah, I am, you know, the only social platform social media platform i have is instagram um because you know it's it's the it's the least rowdy um you know and and so yeah find me there ruby hammered writer and i'm still you know working on my website which has been you know my stock answer for a long time now but it is i am actually literally working on it now um, well, instagram will work until then right <laughs> instagram works yes yeah. so um that's it so like you know the book's been out since late last year so i've i've done the um the the, the speaking the book, engagements the book of it, for yeah. it but um when i do have something else coming up i'll, I'll, I'll put it on my instagram so that's why you can find it there um, yeah well in the meantime take lots of breathing space for that phd i mean i you've already basically written a dissertation as far as i'm concerned so hopefully yeah well funnily enough i've actually changed the question because of this book but i won't get into that so oh, okay. <laughs> because well, we have to go now, now now i want to nerd out about that but i won't abuse the audience with my esoteric <laughs> phd inquisition well we wish you the best of luck with everything thank and thank you so, you so, much, so much again for coming on the book yeah and to everyone at home, uh, please, please check out the book on your own or, again, have a copy requested. I mean, I can't tell you how important it is. And even if the book maybe uh, evokes a, a little bit of guilty, bad feelings, remember that those might be coming from places that you don't really want to be acting from. Mm -hmm. And with that, we'll say goodbye and farewell. And everyone take care and be good to each other.